Hello, I'm Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to our podcast focused on executive leadership in the judiciary. Today, we're talking with Ambassador Wendy Sherman, author of Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. Ambassador Sherman is probably best known as the lead negotiator for the United States on the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Before joining the State Department in 1993, she had a long career as a child welfare advocate and administrator, congressional chief of staff, and political consultant. In addition to pursuing the nuclear agreement with Iran, Ambassador Sherman served as a special advisor on North Korea to President Bill Clinton. In 2011, she became the first female Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Ambassador Sherman co-founded the Albright Stonebridge Group, where she serves as a senior counselor. She is the director of the Center for Public Leadership and a senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. Our host for today's episode is my colleague, Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Michael, take it away. Thanks, Lori. Ambassador Sherman, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. In your book, you focus quite a bit on the courage to break through frozen relationships. And you say, to open yourself to reconciliation is to be vulnerable. Would you expand on both the courage and vulnerability required to thaw frozen relationships? Well, you know, I think if people think about their own personal relationships, maybe they've had a fight with someone in their family or they've had a difficult time or a difficult experience, uh, and perhaps even in the past they've tried to make that relationship work and it just didn't, but something has happened in their life, maybe they're going to have a wedding or a new entry into the family, and they really want to reconcile that relationship. Well, you sort of have to buck yourself up. You have to uh, be willing to uh, open yourself up and to bend uh, to try to reconcile and uh, create a a larger platform and an openness and an inclusiveness uh, to make that happen. And the same thing is true in negotiations, in world affairs. Uh, We have many, uh, unfortunately, frozen relationships in the world, relationships that are pretty bad, uh, and we'd like to make sure that America is secure. Uh, You have to be willing to talk. But when you do these kinds of uh, courage-taking, high-risk, high-wire engagements, you also have to have a strategy, a team, uh, follow-up, make sure you know what the next steps are going to be, but it is essential that when you find the courage to confront difficult relationships uh, that you know how to really follow through and and try to make it work. Thanks. So you're talking about change on the personal level. Let's also talk about situational change. Sometimes it takes courage to see an opening where only frustration seems to exist. For example, the ability to take advantage of a back channel in an important negotiation or to leverage your transition and power to start a negotiation process. Would you elaborate on why you believe this requires courage? I certainly think in the case of um, the Iran negotiation, President Obama had enormous courage uh, to open a back channel through the Omanis uh, with Iran to see if, in fact, uh, there was any traction to ensure that Iran would not get a nuclear weapon. 
uh, it, it took a lot for President Obama to give this a chance, and it ultimately grew uh, into a back channel that was successful and began to shape an interim agreement that was brought into a multilateral negotiation to ultimately get the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I think that President Trump uh, had some courage to uh, be willing to talk to Kim Jong-un of North Korea uh, about uh, trying to denuclearize North Korea. It did take some courage to approach Kim Jong-un on a leader-to-leader level. Uh, and in that culture, where Kim Jong-un holds all the power, uh, he believes only leaders make decisions. So it, it was certainly worth trying. Um, there have been other presidents at other times uh, who have opened those channels, had those discussions. Certainly Henry Kissinger, on behalf of Richard Nixon, in going to China many, many times uh, to open a relationship with China, uh, and to normalize relations with China uh, was an extraordinary uh, act uh, by that president mm-hmm. uh, to try to change uh, the world. Yeah. Thank you. And pursuing this issue of negotiation and bringing people together and the added idea of finding common ground, that also requires sometimes the exercise of power, which you describe as a complicated tool. What do you mean by that, and what advice can you give on how we can leverage power more effectively? You know, a lot of people think that power is a terrible thing, and used improperly or for bad ends, it is a bad thing. But power in and of itself uh, is wonderful uh, because it sometimes allows you to get things done that are quite difficult. We all have power in our lives as parents, uh, in our relationships with people, uh, as a boss, even as a worker, uh, to do or not do certain things. It's really how you use that power uh, that makes it good or bad. Uh, And in negotiations, in international relations, it's always quite critical um, if you want to ensure that something will be followed, it will be enforced, it will be implemented, you need to leave your adversary even with enough power to make sure that that deal is durable. So. Using the Iran example again, when we did this negotiation, uh, we made sure that Iran was left with enough power uh, to enforce and implement the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, because otherwise the entire negotiation would have been for naught. So what I encourage people, and particularly uh, women who sometimes have uh, an odd relationship to power, uh, to use all the power they have, but use it for good purposes, and to understand that uh, you can make something endure and sustainable if you leave everybody at the table with enough power to ensure that durability. Great point. So another aspect of negotiating and leading is persistence, which you write about in your book. What does persistence look like for you? Persistence means understanding that things sometimes are really difficult and they take a long time to do, and you have to persist, it's not the same thing as patience. Uh, There are times in a negotiation, times in any circumstance, where impatience is a good thing. When uh, uh, Secretary of State John Kerry would say to the Iranians, "Uh, you know, I've run out of patience, either decide you're serious about this negotiation or go back to Tehran and get more uh, authorization to really make a deal here. 
uh, but to really do very difficult things. One must persist. Uh, we thought once we got an interim deal with uh, Iran that it would take us about six months to do the final deal. It took us about 18 months, uh, and we had to uh, really live through a lot of very difficult moments and persist. The best things in life take persistence. Uh, good marriages uh, <laughs> only last when uh, you persist, yeah. and there are good times and there are bad times. Times you have to work difficult things out, uh, but you believe that the ultimate objective is worth it. Great. Um, you're right. It's important to know before you start what your definition of success <laughs> is. Why do you say that? Well, one of the things that is quite critical uh, in any negotiating situation is what's the outcome? What are you trying to achieve? So it's, it's quite critical in any negotiation to know where you're headed, even if you have to take steps along the way to get there, um, because then you know uh, what to do every day and what you're driving toward. It's almost like uh, having a vision or a strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Tactics aren't enough. Yeah. You have to have a, a strategy for the ultimate outcome. Mm-hmm. So going back to the question of persistence for a minute, um, what advice would you have for our court leaders on how to both motivate themselves and inspire others over a long period? I think one of the things that's most helpful in that regard is to have a great team. Um, I'm a huge believer in the importance of teams. None of us ever does anything important by ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, during the Iran negotiation, I had a core team of about 15, but I was backed up by literally uh, hundreds of people in the U.S. government. And because we had such a tight team, uh, including skeptics on the team, and I'm a great believer that you need skeptics on a team um, to really go back to first principles and to challenge what you're doing, uh, knowing at the end of the day that the leader of the team gets to make the decisions. Um, we all understood each other. We began every morning with the entire team sitting around the table, ended late at night with the whole team back together again. Everybody knew what each other's skill sets were and how we had to rely on each other uh, to get the job done. Uh, and building that team and creating a culture where you're all headed in the same direction uh, – can help you when you get to difficult moments because you can buck each other up. You can even have some strange fun along the way. If you've got a great team, uh, you can find some ways to get you through uh, very difficult days. Towards the end of the Iran negotiation, uh, sort of my senior nuclear expert, uh, Jim Timby, who really is a nuclear physicist, had his hands on virtually every arms control agreement uh, for 40 years at the State Department, uh, told me that one of our younger team members, also an expert, had some concerns. And so I sat down with Paul. Uh, he had actually 52 concerns. And uh, that was a little uh, daunting, given that I thought we were close to possibly getting a deal. Uh, many of them were highly technical. I sent them to Secretary Moniz, uh, our Secretary of Energy, who was so critical to the negotiations in the last six months. And by the time we got to the end of the deal, virtually every one of those concerns had been addressed. So uh, sometimes it's hard. You have to swallow hard and uh, get yourself uh, to think hard about what you're doing. But having uh, people who challenge you 
on a team is critical if you really want to get a good first-class deal. Thanks. At times, you've been the lone female diplomat at a table full of men. What are some lessons you've taken away from those experiences that might be useful to our audience? I think for me, um, I've always tried to create a support group uh, with other women everywhere I've worked. When I was director of child welfare in the state of Maryland, I was only 30 years old and I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, And so I surrounded myself um, with a support group of women, including my boss, who was a woman, an African-American woman, who also was uh, first in her job. Uh, And we would meet on Thursday evenings in the Inner Harbor of Baltimore uh, for a drink uh, and really just to uh, support each other. When I worked on Capitol Hill as chief of staff of then-Congresswoman Barbara Mikulski, uh, I'd never worked on Capitol Hill. I found other women chiefs of staff. There weren't many in those days. Uh, and we met at one of our homes once a month, only with Chinese carryout. No one was allowed to cook, just to share experiences and to support each other. Um, all of those kinds of support groups are incredibly important, so you know you're not crazy. Uh, when you face a challenge, someone can validate your experience. And even when you're in positions of power, it's really important. Uh, when I was the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, I'd often sit in the Situation Room at a time when Susan Rice was the National Security Advisor and two of her chief deputies were also women. But even so, sometimes in the Situation Room, one of the women would say something important. People would really not acknowledge it. Ten minutes later, a guy would say exactly the same thing, and everyone would say how smart and brilliant he was. Uh, And we uh, sort of adopted an unwritten rule at those moments, and one of us uh, women would speak up and say, John, uh, what a terrific point you've made. It was great for you to come in and reinforce the point that uh, Lisa made a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes the guys would get it. Sometimes they didn't. uh, But we felt we were supporting each other. It's a constant challenge, and I don't think guys mean to be dismissive. It's really part of a long socialization that all of us have had growing up, and we need to uh, support each other. The last thing I'll say is that when I give speeches, if it's in a co-ed audience, invariably the first three questions are from guys. Yep. And I stop, and I won't take any more questions until one of the smart women in the room uh, raises their hands. And women have told me that the reason they don't raise their hands is they're trying to concoct in their brains the perfect question. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, uh, don't try to concoct the perfect question. Guys raise their hands before they know what they want to say. <laughs> and they figure by the time they're called on, they'll think of something that sounds smart. Uh, and they'll say it with enough confidence it won't matter what they say. Uh, so I've encouraged women to raise their hands by the time someone calls on them. They'll know what they want to ask. That's delightful. You've experienced your share of criticism as a public servant. How have you learned to persist in spite of criticism, and how would you encourage court leaders to do the same thing? Well, it's tough sometimes. Uh, Nobody likes to be criticized. Uh, No one likes uh, to be dismissed. Um, Having those support groups uh, to test out whether the criticism is legitimate Uh, or whether it's not, is important uh, to have uh, good allies who will tell you the truth. Sometimes the criticism is right on, and you need to deal with it, but sometimes it's not, and you need to 
see your way through. So having that support group, having allies, having people who will tell you the truth. Our family members are quite important to all of us. I'm really um, lucky to have a marriage that's lasted for almost 40 years, and my husband uh, can tell me his, the honest truth. My daughter, uh, who uh, uh, is certainly in our kids, sometimes tell us truths we don't want to hear, um, and how we're seen is important. Uh, so you have to be willing to take feedback, mm-hmm. uh, know when it's real and know when it's not. Yeah, and sometimes they may be right. Yeah, sometimes they may be right. <laughs> I'm going to go back now to uh, your earlier life where you talk in your book a lot about your upbringing in Baltimore, Maryland, and how those experiences impacted your values and shaped how you even approach your diplomatic work. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this has a lot to do with courage and persistence to do difficult things. Uh, My folks were um, activists in many ways. Uh, When uh, my dad was um, a Marine in World War II, he was wounded in Guadalcanal, came back to the West Coast. He was married to my mom at the time, and uh, neither of them wanted to see war again. And so he and... My mother were very active in what ultimately became founding of the American Veterans Committee, and they both attended the founding of the United Nations in San Francisco because they didn't want to see war again. And then many years later, when they lived back in Baltimore, they got involved in civil rights. And uh, my uh, dad was at uh, a Rosh Hashanah service. Uh, We're Jewish Americans. And the rabbi, uh, Rabbi Morris Lieberman, had been arrested a couple of weeks earlier for being part of a clergyman's group trying to integrate a, uh, an amusement park just outside of Baltimore. And um, he thought he owed his congregation an explanation. And he said that when he was a chaplain during World War II, he was at the liberation of Dachau. And he wondered at the time when Jews were being taken away what clergy had ministered to their congregations on Sundays uh, about this, and he thought for him in his time in Baltimore in the 60s, it was to end the discrimination and degradation of African Americans. My father was very moved by this sermon and went and saw the rabbi a few days later and asked what he could do, and the rabbi said, well, you're very powerful. You sell homes. My dad was in residential real estate at the time. You could advertise your homes to anybody uh, who wants to uh, buy that home. And my father said, well, if I do that, I'll be driven out of town. There were no open housing rules at, or laws at the time. And the rabbi said, well, you've asked me what you can do. This is what you can do. So he and my mother talked about it and decided to do it. And so my father did advertise to anyone uh, who wanted to buy a home as long as the willer, seller was willing to sell Within six months, he had lost 60% of his listings. And a few years later, even though he had added different services uh, to his company, uh, his company closed. Uh, But my folks never, ever doubted the choice they had made because they knew it was important. They knew they had made a difference in people's lives. When Frank Robinson, an African-American baseball player, came to the Baltimore Orioles, ultimately went on to be the most valuable player, uh, uh, Frank Cashin, uh, 
the owner of the Orioles called my father and said, you have to find uh, Frank a house or I won't be able to keep him. Uh, so uh, my parents were able to do remarkable things. And having courage, uh, doing hard things sometimes comes at a price, often comes with a cost. Uh, but important things are important to do regardless of the cost. Absolutely. That's a really compelling story. Your final sentence in the book advises readers to have courage, to work with others to find the common good, to persist against all odds, to use all that we have, all our power, to do good, and to be not faint of heart. These are strong words to live by. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? I've come to um, the Harvard Kennedy School to be the director of the Center for Public Leadership and a professor of practice of public leadership because I think it's so important uh, to educate young people to become the public leaders that we need so desperately right now. We live in a really complicated world, and a lot of people feel very left out and very left behind. Uh, there's a great deal of injustice that remains in the world, a lot of anger, and as we have seen of late, a lot of hate. Uh, people in the federal courts spend every day trying to uh, mete out justice, uh, and it's a hard thing to do. The challenges are great. Uh, it takes a sense of values, of judgment, of law, of what is right and what is wrong, um, of uh, rough justice in this world. Justice is not always perfect, but it's critical. And so I think it's really, really important for young people to understand our Constitution. Uh, for uh, half of the Kennedy School graduates are from other countries to understand the values and the precepts of the United States of America and how important democratic institutions and democratic values are and to gain the skill set to make that real so that uh, people in countries around the world can live good, prosperous lives uh, where they have a say in their governments. Uh, there's peace, security, and prosperity for everyone. Uh, so I think that's a great challenge. I think everyone in the federal court system takes up that challenge every single day. I'm very grateful for their public service, and I want to encourage more young people uh, to join in public service. Well, thank you. And Ambassador, thank you for your service to our country. And thank you for sharing your experiences and insights today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Michael. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to In Session on your mobile device. Produced by Jennifer Richter and directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.